What do you think is going to happen to just humanity? I mean, where do you think we go with that information? Hopefully, we get the information to use that's to our benefit. And we can do things like perpetual motion or perpetual energy. Uh, we can solve a lot of our problems. And maybe we can even learn from them how not to have conflicts with each other yeah. as well. Welcome to Merge. I'm Ryan Graves. Today, we're joined by Chris Van Voorhees, who at the age of 14 started flying with the Civil Air Patrol. Today, he's a domestic and international commercial pilot with over 30,000 flight hours. Chris has come forward to share his multiple UAP encounters throughout his long career, including the ones that continue today. And now, Chris Van Voorhees. Thank you for joining me. Um, I'm super excited to talk to you. You've been a commercial pilot and, I mean, really just a pilot practically your whole life. Uh, I think you, I mean, you started flying before most people even were driving a car. Is that fair to say? Uh, actually, I was flying before I could drive a car, yes. Incredible. So why don't you tell us about that? So you started off just briefly, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your, your journey as a pilot and up to where you are now. Sure. I started out actually when I was about 14 years old. Wow. I started flying gliders in uh, Civil Air Patrol okay. and uh, started flying fixed wing aircraft also in Civil Air Patrol. And it transitioned through high school and I got my private pilot's license right when I turned 17 through a program in my high school. And uh, it was just kind of all after that, a big snowball. Mm -hmm. I did whatever I could, like most aviators, to beg, borrow, and steal flight time mm -hmm. and built it up polishing airplanes and working on flight lines or whatever I could do. And it kind of accumulated after a while to the point where I got hired by uh, an individual out in Rialto Airport to do charter work for him and to do some types of uh, movie-oriented things. Uh, his name was Art Scholl. Like flying for, oh, Art Scholl. Mm -hmm. Cool. And so flying for movie shots and things of that nature. Things of that type, yes. Okay. Man, 14. So, I mean, you you knew basically as, as, as you're growing up that you wanted to fly or did you just find it when you were 13? <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of a long story actually, but when I was young, um, I used to sit out in my backyard and watch airplanes at this airport close to us called Brackett Airport. Mm. And um, no one else in my family was really in aviation at all. My grandfather had a short stint where he had a, an old uh, Newport from post-World War I that he flew for three years until he crashed it in some grapes double out in Ontario. But other than that, no one else in my family was interested in aviation. And I used to sit on this wall in the backyard uh, and, and watch the airplanes down at Brackett Airport. And one day they were having an air show down there. And my parents were gone. <laughs> I decided with my infinite wisdom to go down and see the air show myself. I had a, a babysitter at the time and I just took off and uh, went, <laughs> and that, went out and, and it was about, um, I guess, two and a half miles or so and walked down and, and, uh, and was standing there watching the airplanes. And yeah. sooner or later, uh, I was approached by this gentleman wearing a uniform, um, <laughs> police uniform. <laughs> and he says, your name wouldn't happen to be Chris, would it? And I was like, uh, yeah. Lost we have some, yeah, we have some <laughs> people that are very interested to know where you are. And he took me in, and at that point and showed me. He was uh, the, the uh, operator of the Aero Bureau for Pomona Police Department. Mm. And he took me in the helicopter, and he showed me all around. And it was kind of like, gosh, these people are really neat. I, I really like this. And it stuck. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it just became, like I was saying, uh, 
uh, earlier to you. It, it became like a disease where it gets in your blood and it just doesn't leave. Yeah, awesome. And yeah, and you're out there, you're scrubbing planes and trying to get some time. Yeah. Uh, what was really your kind of first break as far as your opportunity to get behind the cockpit? Oh, actually it was working for another movie production company mm-hmm. um, that was based out of Beverly Hills. And this individual, uh, he needed somebody to fly him up to Lake Tahoe every weekend. And so I would actually rent an airplane mm-hmm. and fly him up to Lake Tahoe. And next thing you know, his businesses really started blossoming. Yeah. And uh, we went from flying him up to Lake Tahoe to him having to have his own airplane. And then he ended up, uh, it was actually needing a twin engine airplane. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a twin engine rating. So he got me the twin engine rating. Um, and then I ended up flying him around and ended up uh, by the time I was, I think, 20 years old, I was flying a Lear 25. Even though I couldn't be qualified in it, mm-hmm. uh, according to the FAA, I had to fly with a, a qualified individual. But, you know, yep. 20, 20 years old flying a Lear 25 at that time was quite a quite an accomplishment. Very cool. Did you have any thoughts of flying in the military? Yes, I did, actually. Now, being in Civil Air Patrol, I, I really did want to fly in the military. But as I got into uh, academy prep and found out through the Air Force that my vision wasn't good enough at the time mm. to uh, fly fighters. And it just kind of like just, you know, pulled the zeal out of me. Yeah. Yep. I know a lot of people. I mean, I was in that point myself. Uh, I had to have uh, laser eye surgery myself just so I could fly. So that was an option for you back then, however, no. correct? Yeah. Oh, this was way back in ancient history in 1977. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So. You know, you've basically been looking up the, at the sky since you've been a little kid and wanting to fly. And yeah. I imagine there's been a plethora of other aircraft that you've flown really since then. Where, where are you now as an aviator? Actually, I'm a, an Airbus captain, and uh, I've been an instructor in the Airbus and sim instructor and ground instructor uh, over the past, um, well, actually, it was about uh, pre-COVID, okay. so about, uh, what, two and a half years ago or so up to that point. Okay. And so uh, I've been flying as a, a captain with other entities, uh, Japan Airlines or Jowways is what it was called. Uh, flew as a DC-10 captain, 747 captain, and then was transitioning to the 747-400 when uh, the economic downturn of 2008-2009 hit. Yeah. Man, when I think of, um, like, when people ask me questions about, hey, did you, like, always want to be a pilot and stuff, I almost guiltily say no, you know? Like, it's just like, hey, I, I figured it out when I was in college, but that's so cool that you just had that path in your life from a very early age, that passion. Yeah, I took, I took some alternate routes in the meantime when it was hard to get a flying job. Mm-hmm. You know, did voiceover work, uh, actually became a police officer wow. in the city of El Monte for a little over a year. Which, uh, I wanted to fly for a law enforcement agency, but at that point in time, there were so many Vietnam vets that were ahead of me, it became discouraging. You're still actively flying, you're a commercial pilot, mm. you're flying with passengers. Um, and I understand that you've had a couple, at least, UAP or, or UFO experiences. Um, mm-hmm. There have been some cases over the, over the United States and likely elsewhere, but that's where it's been reported now. Uh, about lights in the sky uh, over aircraft. I also understand you had an incredible experience um, about a decade or so ago, uh, maybe two. Which one would you like to talk about first? Um, Well, let's start out with the earliest one, which was in 2005. Okay. And that's when I was flying for Jalways or or Japan Airlines. 
And that was coming out of Fukuoka into Honolulu. And we were somewhere around just past the international date line. And it was really early in the morning when there's just a small little sliver of light blue on the horizon. Mm. Um, flying with another captain and a flight engineer on the DC-10. So there's three cockpit crew members. And uh, all of a sudden I saw some type of glint out of the corner of my eye and looked up. It was probably at about 30 degrees uh, in inclination and maybe about the 10 o'clock position from our aircraft and three large disks. And, you know, I hate to sound cliche for that, but three large disks in a triangular formation actually came into the uh, atmosphere, glinting off the sun that was over the horizon. All right. Well, so you were looking up at it 30 degrees mm -hmm. and it was about 10 degrees off your nose, mm -hmm. you said. Um, did we how far did you say you thought it was? Were you yeah, able to yeah. estimate that at all? You know, it was really difficult. It was far enough to have the sun glinting off of it that was still down over the horizon. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was, uh, these things were huge. I mean, there was no way to, to not say they were. And for anyone not to be able to see it, it was amazing to me because we had another aircraft in front of us. They saw it, um, we saw it, and we were talking with them. And it was such a short period. We only saw it for maybe 15 seconds. Um, and we asked them, are they going to tell anybody? And they're like, no, we're not going to say anything. Uh, are you? No, we're not going to say anything either. Um, Wait, who, with the FAA controllers are saying that or the other aircraft? No, this or? was out over the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Okay. So there's another Air Japan flight. And it was down in front of us, down below us. And um, they, they had seen it as well. Okay, so they did actually see mm -hmm. it, but they mm -hmm. were saying like, hey, we're not going right. to really report to so. And all three of us in the cockpit saw it. Wow. And uh, I still am in contact with those individuals today, and we still reminisce about it. Really? Because it was something that still even now it makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. I felt privileged to have seen it. There were people that asked me, were you scared? Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, I, I felt privileged because it was wow. something that really changed my view on, on UFOs or UAPs. Uh, up to that point, it had always been something that had been, you know, I, I, I'd seen some things that were odd, mm -hmm. but I'd never seen anything like that. I attributed my, at, at that point in time, I should say, I, I look at what I was compared to what I am now in the way of mind or my mind being open. Mm -hmm. um, it opened my mind. Really? And it allowed me to all of a sudden say, hey, these things aren't in the world of fantasy. Mm. These are something that's real. There's something that, that uh, you know, is not in the paranormal. And it should be taken as being real and looked at scientifically. But unfortunately, back in, in 2005, that was even before we had iPhones. And I couldn't even take a video or anything like that of it. Because these things, when they came in and reoriented themselves in the atmosphere, they accelerated. Uh, it wasn't even really saying they were accelerating because they were at speed and gone over the horizon in just a matter of wow. a, a so, couple of yeah, seconds. Yeah, let's go back to that. So they're in a triangle with essentially like the point facing in the direction they're moving. And it did it descend down or was it level when you were looking at it? Do you remember that? No, they just kind of came in and stopped. It wasn't, they were, they were coming in at an angle and then stopped. And then they kind like of- Descending from space or right, from somewhere correct. above. Okay, right. interesting. And they stopped, they kind of slightly reoriented. Like the whole formation? The whole formation, the triangular okay. formation reoriented, and then, poof, gone. 
Like disappeared, couldn't see it, or you see it move? No, you could see it accelerate. Really? But it was just at speed, instantaneously. It's almost not even accelerating, just kind of not moving and then moving in the direction. It just seems so fast. Right. Wow. It it had to be some type of technology that we didn't have in uh, in 2005, I can tell you that much. How big do you think they were? You know, I would say at least 100 foot across in order to be seen at that altitude like we saw them in it was it was something that's hard to judge mm-hmm. uh, but because they were actually reflecting the sunlight that was still over the horizon and their angle from us they were still very high and they appeared to be very large mm-hmm. so at least 100 feet across fascinating yeah they were huge their relative position in the formation right like could you have fit another one of them in between like can you kind of give us a sense of how spaced out the formation was it might not have been easy to tell with that a grazing angle but Mm. yeah that that's rather hard to say um but i would say you would have been able to fit one more maybe Mm -hmm. in between the middle of it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. very good man so you weren't really, you know, you've had some experience, maybe not even had experiences, but you just kind of casually, you know, observed some of the, mm-hmm. you know, UFO talk back in the day. And then this kind of really changed that for you. It kind of made you feel, well, maybe not kind of, was it, it was a very strong feeling is mm-hmm. what I'm picking up. What about the other crewmates? It said, you said you still talk to them. Mm-hmm. Do, do you, do they feel the same way as you? Oh yeah, they, they do. But again, there's such a stigma around it or, and the, the, I guess the aura of ridicule mm-hmm. that even to this day and time, people don't want to come out in the open and talk about it. And that's one reason that I'm doing this is because I want to take it out of the real. I want to take it out of the paranormal mm-hmm. type of, of uh, I guess you could say the, the aura around it, yeah. and put it into the reality of today. Because I want to look at it from the scientific standpoint, the technological standpoint, and the aviation safety standpoint. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with you a hundred percent on that. It's, it's frustrating to think that you had such like a powerful experience, all of you together, and you have this strange sense of shame almost around it. You don't want to talk about it. I mean, that's, I imagine that must be very conflicting. It is. And you know, when you're talking to somebody and you start talking about UAPs or UFOs and they just kind of, you know, smirk at you and like, yeah, right. Um, it's, it's moved out of that realm now to where you're talking about people are actually interested in it. Um, we have a lot of our pilots uh, where I currently work that have come forward to me and say, hey, you know, I've seen stuff out there that I can't explain, wow. but I don't have an avenue really to express what I've seen without uh, repercussions from the airline. Because mm-hmm. let's face it, the airlines don't want to have uh, – people out there saying, oh, my pilots are out there seeing UFOs or UAPs. Um, Because, well, let's take it uh, as an example back in, this was back in 1986, but at Japan Airlines, there was a a pilot, his name was uh, uh, Kenju Terauchi, and he was flying a 747 from Paris, France to Narita. Yes, and there were over Anchorage, and they actually encountered three UFOs, one very large one and two smaller ones. And it was actually uh, picked up on radar. The military also was able to look at it. They scrambled aircraft. The U.S. military? The U.S. military. And it was one of the best documented 
UFO incidents in the commercial aviation history hmm. up to that point. That was uh, in 1986. We're going to have to look into that. It was, it was really something that was really interesting because all of a sudden, all the tapes, everything disappeared from the, the radar. The radar. Uh, everything, poof, gone. Voice too? Perhaps. Voice too. Oh. But the radar uh, controller kept a copy. Oh, so it, it is on record, by the way. Huh. And it's, it's very interesting. But the poor captain that was associated with this, um, they gave him a ground job. They took him and, and... They stopped him from flying. They stopped him from flying. Why? I guess they figured that he was mentally unfit. Oh, man. Because, you know, and, and that's the thing about it. And it still kind of today, today has this uh, aura or stigma around it. Uh, unfortunately, and being able to take it from this this uh, paranormal state and put it into the state of reality is something that we need to do. It's something that we really need to look at and and pursue uh, from the standpoint. We need this information yeah. for the scientific uh, advance. And it's data, right? Like the, we, that's all data that we we could be using to to learn about this phenomenon. I'll tell you what, the fact that. They went and launched intercept aircraft um, and had all the radar. I mean, that that's all a very well-documented process that would go on. To, so to think that they grounded him for um, mental being mentally unfit, honestly, mm -hmm. it sounds more like a retribution than really anything else, just pure retribution. Well, the Japanese had a way of keeping your mouth shut about things. And, and uh, they would do what we, we called uh, the shuffle. If they, if you knew something about one thing that you shouldn't know, they would shuffle you to another area where you couldn't say anything about it. Hmm. And that's basically what they did with him. Man, that's tough. He worked. He, you know, I'm sure he worked for a very long time to get into that position. The 747 is a big aircraft. That's not something you just kind of walk into off the line. Um, that's a shame. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what about yourself? I mean, you're still uh, an active captain. Do you have any fear that there'll be retribution mm. against yourself? Uh, actually, yes. Really? Uh, I've already had uh, calls from uh, upper management uh, mm. basically telling me, not in the the words, but telling me to basically cease and desist. And they do not mention the airline. Yeah. You can do whatever you want on a private standpoint, but do not mention the airline under any circumstances. Mm -hmm. yep. yeah. They still want to... You know, and it's really funny because they're not afraid to come forward. Like if I was talking about just satellites or something, they'd be, oh, yeah, that's fine. But because it has the word unidentified in there, uh, all of a sudden it's just like, oh, no, don't talk about that. Do you that. think it's pure skepticism or stigma or do you think there's something more to it? I think there's something more to it. Hmm. I think that the airline looks at it like, oh, well, we don't want people thinking that our pilots are out there flying around and seeing UFOs, even mm -hmm. though that I would say, you know, 40% of us or more have actually seen uh, UAPs out there. Um, they don't want to broadcast that. And I can understand that. So do you think on, on average, perhaps like these airline, the, the management understands that this is, is, is real. It's just, they don't want to deal with it. Essentially? Yeah. They have other problems to deal with. Well, you would think that aviation safety would be pretty high on their list of concerns. Well, let me put it this way. It is, but nothing has happened mm -hmm. yet. Mm -hmm. And until something would, were to happen, uh, instead of being proactive about it, they're reactive when Very it comes much. to something like this. Mm -hmm. So do you think the airline, you know, the, those organizations themselves would 
should be part of the conversation or should the pilots have some type of reporting mechanism that would be associated with some type of centralized reporting mechanism perhaps that aviators trust? I think that would be the best best thing, uh, to have something where we could report almost anonymously, mm-hmm. or if not completely anonymously, um, to where we could feel free to report what we need to without having any retribution or ridicule, ridicule mm-hmm. from the airline. Well, we're doing, I mean, we're seeing that uh, going um, through the process right now for military um, aviators, defense contractors. Um, it doesn't sound like the commercial aviation um, the pilots themselves, they have any outlet. They have no protection, essentially. They have no ability to even report yeah. this safety issue to their chain of command through their business without fear of retribution. Well, you have different organizations, including the FAA, NARCAP, NASA. They do have reporting systems, but they're inadequate. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, they don't allow you to actually get a response from them, or there mm. there is no response. Even though you put in something, it just falls on deaf ears, goes in the... The, the file and it's just the way to placate you essentially you don't expect basically. anything to actually basically get okay so there's no one actually doing anything with that data it's you know theoretically we wouldn't be able to share it um, it would likely be anonymized so perhaps that would be a data source if we were able to get a centralized reporting location that pilots so long as it was a standardized reporting mechanism that we could actually gather useful data from that's correct is it more to poke around on that story you know, the, the only other thing <clears throat> that I can think to poke around on that story is the fact that <clears throat> there's all these, um, you know, reports coming in from commercial airline pilots now about, about things that um, are UFO or UAP associated. And <clears throat> it's too bad that all this data from the past was wiped out. Because, you know, you've been seeing UAPs and UFOs. You know, people think it's a recent phenomena, but it's mm-hmm. not. And, you know, even throughout history, they can see where it's, it's been, you know, I mean, even paintings or whatever with UFOs or whatever in it. So I think it's a shame that all this data that could have been collected is, is gone, evaporated. That's a good point. It is. Um, my hope would be that we could make up with that with some modern tools, perhaps. Um, well, speaking of, of, of modern tools, so I'd like to hear a little bit about some of the, I mean, so you've had this incredible mm-hmm. experience. It's essentially changed where mm-hmm. you sit within the universe, at least mentally, yeah, I would yes. imagine, you know. I mean, one, that's like an incredible gift, I would say, to have. Even if you haven't been able to really, like, celebrate it, mm-hmm. I think, publicly, it's, you know, it's still, I think, a special gift. But, well, I was a skeptic beforehand, and I'll be quite honest with that. I'd been flying uh, 35 years up to that point. And I was always like, oh, I've never seen anything. I can't at, le- at least explain mm-hmm. somehow, some way what it is, including, you know, the tether coming off the space shuttle uh, mm-hmm. when they were doing experiments to generate electricity. I've watched uh, space junk re-enter, meteorites re-enter, sh- satellites, satellite launches, upper atmosphere launches from aircraft. I've seen about all of it. And, you know, being able to see that in 2005, uh, if you want to say it really rocked my world, it did really rock my yeah. world. And it made me a, a believer. And, you know, people are like, well, you think it was aliens? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And uh, it could have been little green men or it could have been, you know, interdimensional travel. It could have been time travel. And it could have been, no, I will say it wasn't military because in 2005, we didn't have any technology 
like that. It had to have been some type of anti-gravitational technology in order to accelerate that rapidly. Mm. Incredible. Mm -hmm. Did this change really how you think about other things that are a little more subjective? Do you consider yourself like a religious person or how does that change your life kind of maybe with other topics that are hard mm -hmm. to grapple with? Well, there's a, a difference between belief and religion, okay? Mm -hmm. um, I believe in a superior being, of course, and but I am not uh, maintaining there's a certain religion. And I think there's a difficulty with some individuals um, and their religious beliefs and UFOs or UAPs. Um, I think that it has to be approached from the standpoint of like the, that when you look into the Bible and you look at what the Bible says, it leaves a lot of holes for us to mend with our understanding. Mm. And part of our understanding is that the fact we, we, <laughs> we can't be alone in the universe. Mm. And whether it's through portals or uh, some type of inner space, uh, interdimensional travel, we are gonna be visited. Whether or not, if you wanna say as a skeptic, we have been in the past or not, I don't know, but we will be visited. Um, people look at uh, the earth as being a resource also, maybe for interstellar travel. Uh, the water, we have one of the few planets with liquid, wa liquid water on it. Mm -hmm. So that may be a resource that they're looking for as well. Mm -hmm. And with all the USOs and, and uh, it seems like there's a lot of it uh, these days associated with water. object, yeah, mm -hmm. things underwater. Yeah, um, that's kind of when you kind of start zooming out, once you kind of have accepted that kind of information, you've had experience like yourself or whether you've done the homework mm -hmm. to, to convince yourself that, um, you know, something's going on that really does provide a lot of food for the various paths that could be. It's fascinating. Yeah, and there, there are difficulties in relating it uh, to religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you dive into it uh, a little deeper, like a lot of people have, um, you'll find out that there, there's actually references uh, like the book of Enoch in mm -hmm. the Bible that was completely removed because it had references to extraterrestrials in it. I was going to ask if... Um if there are any other kind of things that this is, you know, after you had the experience, you know, are there other things that you previously thought were kind of baloney that you've either, you know, reconsidered or otherwise changed your beliefs? Um, let me put it this way. My mind's a lot more open to a lot of things. Very good. So um, beforehand, and being a pilot, uh, one thing that you kind of are taught or learn early on is it's a very black and white world. This mm. is the way you do it. You have the rules, the SOPs, the standard operating procedures. You adhere to this. You don't, uh, you don't deviate from it at all. It's black and white. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, the world has a lot of gray in it as well. And uh, we are dealing now in, in, in this day and age with a lot of gray. Mm. Uh, everything isn't as black and white as it used to be. Mm -hmm. Yep, I agree. So let's fast forward. You're flying. It's now present day. Mm -hmm. You've been seeing objects over the continental United States, over um, off the Western coast. Mm -hmm. um, we've recently on the show talked with other commercial pilots who have seen uh, some of these objects. We've seen tens of pilots. I mean, lots of pilots reaching out, talking online, um, 
personally reaching out to me, explaining that there are a lot of lights in the sky mm -hmm. performing in ways that they're not familiar with. And when I say when they're not familiar with, there's a lot of a lot baked into that, right? And so we've just talked about you basically been looking at the sky since you were 14. Uh, have you ever seen anything like this before? Nothing like what we're currently seeing. Um, I was able to see actually two experiences recently, or had two experiences. Uh, one was on August 9th, and the other was on the 15th. Just this year? Just this year, yeah, in 2022. Uh, the first one, we were on our way to LAX, and uh, my FO, who had actually seen it before, my co-pilot, who had mm -hmm. actually seen it before, was telling me, hey, you know, I saw these lights there down the right-hand corner of the Big Dipper, and they were moving in unusual ways, and I, okay, that's interesting. And then he goes, Oh, there they are. Take a look. <laughs> and we sat there and watched these things for about three hours or more until the point we got, wow. we actually got bored with it. It was like, ah, eh, they're still out there. And all the other aircraft were talking on a frequency about it as well. And so there was a lot of chatter on uh, air to air frequency, which mm -hmm. is 2345 for us when we're out over the Pacific. Um, a lot of chatter about it. Hey, are you guys seeing what we're seeing? Yeah. Yeah. Matter of fact, it's right up there in the, the lower right hand corner of the Big Dipper. Wow. And, so <clears throat> there was a lot of lot of chatter about it for sure. Anything on the radar? If no, and uh, <clears throat> obviously people ask them. Yeah, well, did you see anything on radar? Well, no. These were very high in the atmosphere, and uh, radar only paints up to like 320 miles maximum in front of you. And if it's a smaller object, it's not going to pick it up mm -hmm. anyway. Um, and especially if it if it's not in the atmosphere, it's not going to pick it up. And there was no, was there any ATC control or are you kind of in no, between? No, we're out over the middle of the Pacific. The only thing we have is is our, uh, what they call CPDLC, the, uh, the pilot controller link. And then uh, that's via satellite. And that's, mm -hmm. We just type and talk to them. And the other thing is HF radio, which uh, we use as a backup. Got it. Okay. So in what altitude were you at? We were at 39,000 feet. Okay, so you're pretty much up there. There might be a little bit of traffic above you, but um, not too much, and they'd be pretty big and pretty recognizable, I would imagine, at oh, normal yeah. altitudes. Yeah. Um, so would you, would you estimate that? And so how, what would you describe? You're just seeing lights then? They were just like they, point, point lights? Basically, there were lights that would come on and get very bright, brighter than any of the stars really? or any of the planets that are like, there. Like twice as bright? Like... I would say so. It was kind of like somebody almost pointing a spotlight. But the thing is, they were so far away. Um, and, and people say, well, was it, was it a reflection from the sun? I've seen satellites that reflect the sun. And usually when they're rotating, it's you know, fairly fast. And you can still see the satellite afterwards. Mm. This was something that was very unique from the standpoint. We would see it. It would move. It seemed like there were several objects, actually. We'd see it it'd move in a linear type of fashion. It would get very bright. And it would kind of curve like it was curving up or curving down, and then it would disappear. And it wasn't like a satellite that would dim gradually, it would be off. And that's the difference, because when I was, you know, over the years observing satellites, you could see them as they're tracking across the sky, even after the sun wasn't glinting on them, you could still see them moving across mm -hmm. the sky. Mm -hmm. And I realized that there's 4,000, you know, Starlink satellites up there, but a satellite will move in a linear fashion. It won't curve. Mm -hmm. And it won't have the type of light that this had. Um, this also was to the north of us, down below the right-hand side of the Big Dipper. Now, when you see satellites, usually it's during sunrise or sunset. It's reflecting the sunlight off the solar panels. Uh, this was to the north. 
So this was not during sunrise or sunset. This was something that, if it was reflecting the sun, would have to be way out in space in order to reflect the sun that we could see it. Hmm. Interesting. So you, you think that these were objects that were producing their own light and not reflecting sunlight. That's, that's what your assessment is of this. That would be my best assessment on it. Do you think it was like a propulsion system? Um, we had uh, one guy, he came a up- A traditional with, propulsion yeah. system, perhaps I should say? Well, we had one guy who said, well I, well, I think they're high altitude drones. Well, first of all, a high altitude drone would have to have some type of propulsion system um, that would be uh, still air breathing, uh, even if, unless it's a spacecraft. And in a spacecraft, it wouldn't have a propulsion system like that. Uh, if it was like you, you're, I think you're referring to like an afterburner or something. No, some kind of rocket, you know, that no, would illuminate. No. no, and and also, they wouldn't be doing the same thing for over three hours so yeah, in the same area. Let's talk about that. So you would see, you'd be flying, and you see the Big Dipper, and mm -hmm. just to the right of the bottom left star, bottom right hand star, yeah. bottom right hand star, just mm -hmm. to the right of that. You're seeing objects, and it looks like it's going left or right, there, south and north. Or how? Uh, that was what was also interesting about it. it. It would move right to left, left to right, up to down. Oh, it they're coming from all over the place. Right, and it was just in a specific area. And it wasn't like it was, um, you know, I mean, any rhyme or reason to it. That's the other thing about satellites. They have a cadence, one, two, three, light. Mm-hmm. One, two, three, dim. And these didn't have any cadence to them. They would come on whenever they wanted to, kind of, and then go away whenever they wanted to. It was really bizarre. Incredible. So straight line, random directions, and then a J-hook, essentially. It would start doing a hook and then go out. And then it would instantly fade out at that point. Mm -hmm. And when it started, this, it was essentially getting brighter in some sense. Mm -hmm. I think you talked about it getting in brighter. Is that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was it only brighter in a certain direction or was there any consistency to no. the variation? A lot of times the object would appear stationary. It would come on bright and then you would see it move. Really? Yeah. So it was yeah. very unusual compared to what we would usually see. And, and that's the one thing that really got most of the people that I've talked to that have seen these things. Most of our pilots um, say that that's what gets them about it. It's not the usual type of anomaly that we would see. Mm -hmm. And you'd be able to explain away as being a satellite, a missile, or whatever it may be, you know, high altitude drones. No, it doesn't have any type of characteristic that would belong to any of those. Hmm. What do you think it is then? <laughs> I have no idea. It's a UAP. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I wish I knew because, uh, you know, I could answer a lot of people's questions about it. But uh, it uh, definitely is unusual and it definitely... And this is what really intrigues me is the scientific uh, aspect of it and the technological aspect of it. What is it and why is it here or where did it come from? Mm -hmm. If it you're is- You're moving on to the deeper questions now. I th do you think your earlier experience kind of helped you, you know, move past the real, not real a little bit faster? Um, yes, uh, in the way of uh, believing, mm -hmm. uh, Yes, you know whether or not it's interterrestrial, uh, interdimensional, whether it's uh, extraterrestrial, whether it's time travel. I don't know, but I can tell you one thing, uh, especially the, what we saw in two thousand five, is nothing that we have, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. that opens up your mind. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know that 
right after that happened, we didn't talk to many people about it because every time we did, we'd just get a smirk. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody, and it's just like, okay, you know, there was a show on TV, uh, you know, I know what I saw. And that's basically, there were three of us there and another aircraft. We know what we saw. Yeah. And it was something that wasn't a mass hallucination. It wasn't satellites. It wasn't anything that could be attribute, attributed to anything that we had technologically at that time. Wow. And people say, oh, well, we could be back engineering things that we got back in 1947 during Roswell. Well, Still sounds like a pretty fascinating story to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's that's possible. And that's the interesting thing about this, the realm of possibilities on this. Mm -hmm. And being able to open your mind to any of these. And, and I like myself not leaning toward any one of them because I like looking at each one and, and the technical and scientific possibilities of each different thing it may be. Yeah. Do you think we've been held back in some sense by our own... Oh, absolutely. Skepticism, really? Yeah, I, I think we've been held back uh, by the government up to this point. Mm. Um, the cat's out of the bag now. So they're, they're kind of like, oh, yeah, well, these things exist. As you well know, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of happened to you, right? Mm -hmm. um, but up to this point, they've been very tight-lipped about it because if you think about it, you know, this could be something that is one of the most important things to happen in humanity. If it is extraterrestrial and we're making contact, it would be the absolute most important thing that happened in humanity. So... So we should better look into it. <laughs> yeah, I think so. That's a good <laughs> we idea. Maybe not ignore it. Yeah, that's a good idea, and that's one of the reasons that that I'm coming forward with it too. Besides the aviation safety standpoint of it, you know, are they under intelligent control? Or are they going to be a hazard to us, mm -hmm. or are they something that we should be concerned about? It's something that's going to drop from the sky, and like uh, you know, off the coast here of of California, the the uh, Tic Tac videos, you know, where are these things going to create a conflict with uh, the aircraft? Mm -hmm. Are they something that we should be concerned about commercially? Because obviously they don't show up on radar. They do show up on IR, but mm -hmm. we don't have IR in commercial aircraft, yeah. obviously. Think about what trouble that could cause, even if you just don't acknowledge it, right? If we know we have objects in our airspace doing things, I mean, what about the opportunity for miscommunication with another right. nation, right? We think it's them versus something else because we're pretending that there isn't a third party. Absolutely, hmm. absolutely. I don't think that this is... A, a problem or a situation that the United States alone can necessarily resolve. I don't think, you know, any one nation really has the moral authority to do that. It really has to right. be, you know, a global effort looking into this to say that, hey, we've, we've looked at the options, we, we understand that this is us, and we're looking to see what else is out there. Yeah, there's been a lot of sightings over China, over Russia, mm -hmm. over the U.S., uh, in South America, they're fairly open about it. So they've yeah. published a lot of the UAP type of videos. And uh, I think that as we get more open about it and people become more accepting on the idea that maybe we aren't alone, that maybe we do have some type of other entity out there, I think that there's going to be a lot more revealed slowly. Mm -hmm. Because they can't do it all at once, and that's obvious. Yeah. But slowly, I think they're going to reveal things and, and the door will open and people go, oh, okay. That's what it's all about. What do you think is going to happen to just humanity? I mean, where do you think we go with that information? Hopefully we get the uh, information to use that's to our benefit. Mm. Um, and we can do things like, you know, perpetual motion or perpetual energy. Mm -hmm. uh, we can 
solve a lot of our problems and maybe we can even learn from them how not to have conflicts with each other yeah. as well. And That'd probably the most valuable thing we could learn. <laughs> right. You know, uh, Ronald Reagan said, you know, what would happen if basically there was another uh, entity out there that we all band together as a world against or, or actually as a people come together mm. and see that we are really one people against something else. Um, this is the other thing that, that people have been saying, well, maybe this is some U.S. government ploy to make everybody think that there is some type of force out there that we all have to be worried about. Hmm. Well, believe me, these things have been coming for thousands of years. <laughs> they haven't done anything yet, so why would they do something now? Mm -hmm. I understand that they're probably interested in our nuclear technology because it seems like they're showing up around nuclear aircraft carrier groups and around uh, nuclear sites and whatever. Uh, so I, I know they're probably interested in that. Seems like a prudent measure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you don't think they're they're hostile or a threat necessarily outside of um, you know, normal aviation concerns and knowing your airspace. Personally, I don't. Mm -hmm. Because I, they've had a lot of time to do something up to this yeah. point in time. If uh, if you want to stop a, a dam from breaking, you take care of it real early on. You don't wait until there's a huge crack down the center. And right now we have a huge crack down the center of this thing and the the people uh in in the world basically are so i i don't want to say in tune now with uh the possibility of ufos but they're much more uh educated on it mm -hmm. and i think that the door is slowly opening and thousands of years ago people wouldn't understand it and they would think they're gods and mm -hmm. and whatever i think now the crack has opened up enough that people might start understanding it and hopefully hopefully they wouldn't uh think of them as being something that's malevolent. So you were seeing these, you guys were seeing these J-hook patterns out there, mm -hmm. which, um, so that's kind of like half of a, half of a racetrack pattern, which I've described before as what we've been seeing on the East Coast. Um, we had Mark Holsey, Captain Mark Holsey uh, on here recently, and he was describing racetrack patterns as well. Uh, over the continental United States, um, and a J is essentially a half of a half of half of one of those. So, do you think it, maybe this is the same type of pattern you're perhaps seeing it either from a different angle or something? Actually, the, the description sounds almost identical to what we've been seeing, mm -hmm. and that to me is interesting. So, why the J? Why not a full racetrack? And why does it start to to make the turn and then the light go out? Mm. So that's kind of something that, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And the fact that they're not coming from any specific direction, they come from all kinds of directions, but they all have the same tendencies or characteristics to where they, as they light up, they get bright and they move and then they start to make the hook and then they disappear. Mm -hmm. So I have no clue to tell you the truth. Yeah. So would you mm. would you define it as like a J hook pattern? I mean, that's what that's what it looks like, right? Essentially, right. a J hook, which you know is half of a yeah, <laughs> you know, a racetrack yeah. pattern. So you could call it that. that. That's very interesting that it came off. Do you think it could be any type of meteor, maybe coming like kind of towards your line of vision? No, I've, I've even seen that mm -hmm. to where it spooks me coming at the airplane. Like I hope that goes over the top of us, um, but no, and nothing mm -hmm. like that. And 
again, a meteor is going to move in a linear type of fashion, not that it's going to be propelled from side to side. So it's mm -hmm. not going to move in a different direction other than just linear. So we have this unknown activity occurring, pilots across the United States, you know, perhaps further, I haven't spoken to um, too many international pilots, but I've certainly heard it happening over, you know, the Atlantic and the Pacific. Um, doesn't this seem like something that as a, a, you know, a lifelong aviator, as the captain of this vessel with, you know, 200 souls or however many souls on board, you know, as a fighter pilot, I knew that, you know, we had to be very considerate about where we're putting our bombs and stuff. But as a commercial airliner, you've got all those souls on board and you guys go through a lot of work to make sure that uh, those customers are safe, right? Right. That's our first and foremost priority is the safety of the, the aircraft crew and passengers, not necessarily in that order. But uh, the thing that, that concerns me about this is since it is an unknown, uh, how can that possibly be a, a, a hazard to aviation safety? Could it be a hazard to aviation safety? Um, are we looking at something that in the future is going to become different, more aggressive? And how can we be prepared for that? Mm -hmm. And that's where I come in on this. And as a pilot, I'm kind of stepping out on, on a limb uh, to kind of introduce this into the norms of reality. Mm -hmm. But I want to make sure that there is some way in place that we can get more information and that we can possibly prepare for some type of incident or some type of, of uh, future interaction with these uh, UAPs mm -hmm. to where we'll be able to I, at least have some idea of what they're doing, where they're going, and, and what type of, of uh, maneuvers they'll be doing. Yeah, that's a great point. So, you know, one of the efforts I've been engaged in is with the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, or the AIAA. Uh, and they've, they've asked me to help them stand up a, a permanent committee with which to look at unidentified aerospace phenomenon. One of the activities that we have going on uh, is to do just that, is to, to bring in pilots, uh, to bring in subject matter experts, and to start ideating on some of the policies and procedures around how we can report this and integrate it into our aviation safety frameworks, both on military aviation and commercial aviation, mm -hmm. general aviation, business class aviation. We really need to make sure that all those procedures are centralized and they're consistent and it's all in one spot so that we can actually do effective data analysis on it. And so we're gonna be recommending some of those, those reporting procedures and firing type policy changes um, to some of the organizations that have the authority to actually implement those changes, such as the FAA, NASA, and other partners that we're looking to work with. So I do see that there is a path forward to have that, that kind of critical conversation at the engineering and scientific level. Uh, and this podcast, in a sense, is really a natural uh, evolution of that because I can have pilots on like yourself and we can have you know, just a pilot-to-pilot -pilot conversation and, and kind of dig into the details in a way that perhaps a non-pilot uh, wouldn't know to ask those questions uh, and really give you a platform that you maybe haven't had in the past to talk about this. That's perfect. And you were asking earlier about whether or not we should bring the airlines into the, into the loop. And if we do something like that, the airlines are going to have to be in the loop. You think so? Yeah, I think so. Because um, if you leave them out of the loop, then what's going to happen is guys will still feel like they're, they have the possibility of having retribution to reporting. 
from the airlines. But if you bring the airline into the loop and they say, yeah, it's okay to do that, it's going to open the floodgate. Do you think the airline uh, unions have any role to play? Not at this point, mm -hmm. really. Um, I don't see other than protecting the pilots from it, the mm -hmm. uh, possibility of retribution from an airline. I don't see where the, air, uh, the, the unions would come into play very much. Yeah. Um, airlines usually have what they call house rules uh, about involving that airline in interviews. And that's specifically one of the reasons that I haven't mentioned which airline I work for mm -hmm. is the fact that I am abiding by their, their house rules mm -hmm. in not doing so. And if you bring the airlines into the loop where you, you don't have that type of uh, situation where you don't feel like there'll be a retribution to actually speaking out, mm -hmm. you can actually attain a lot more information from pilots. Now, one thing I learned in uh, an aviation management degree is the fact that your employees are your best sounding board for any issues you may have with your airline. Talk to them first because they're going to know how to solve the problems before some guy in the head shed is going to. Mm -hmm. And it's along the same lines with this. Uh, talk to the pilots. But if the pilots can't come forward with their information, then you're basically, you know, it's falling on, on deaf ears. Mm -hmm. And just wasting that opportunity. Exactly. And that data. Yep, makes a lot of sense. Uh, do you know any pilots that you think we could invite on to have this conversation? Or do you think that there's kind of far and few between um, on this topic? You know, I, I know uh, I've talked to several of our pilots. I know a few that, uh, that might want to come forward um, that uh, definitely want to see the same things happening that I see. But on the other hand, I don't think that uh, a lot of the guys are ready for it yet mm -hmm. because they still feel like the airline's going to be on their back about it. Certainly. You know, I think ultimately, you know, this isn't necessarily like the pilot's responsibility at the end of the day. Uh, I feel like we're in this position where, you know, uh, just really society in itself wasn't really ready to have this conversation. And so we've just kind of shouldered mm -hmm. the load in the meantime, in a sense, as far as reporting and, you know, the emotional baggage of, of having your life change and not being able to talk about it. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like... Um and like you said, the emotional baggage that goes along with it. If you feel like you have something to uh, contribute, like some type of information, but you can't put it out there because of the restrictions you have from your employer, that is not only limiting the source of information that can get out there and help mitigate uh, any problems with safety, but it's also it's, it's actually cutting society short, short on what's actually out there and what we're actually seeing. Absolutely, yeah, doing a disservice. Absolutely. Maybe, I don't know if you could put a number on it, but like as far as what's been going on recently and the pilots that you've been speaking to, like what percentage have been having, have been seeing objects they can't explain? Well, realize that most of the guys that know that I'm working with this uh, are the ones that contact me. So it's kind of hard for me to gauge the exact number, but I'm sure it's a lot. Yeah. Um, I would say if I had to come across and say how many people I've flown with that have said, oh, yeah, I've seen something, um, it would say about 40, 40 to 50 percent of the people I've flown with. Half the people who've flown with have probably seen something they can't explain. Right. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. And it all started. Uh, You've been flying since you were 14. Yeah. <laughs> with me, it all started when I was uh, young and I was flying out to Catalina Island and oh, really? I saw a meteorite actually fly in front of me and fall in the water and you could kind of still see it a little bit when and that was spooky to me because i was like 
Okay, but I was able to explain it. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, I I didn't make a misidentification. But you know, this thing came down in in front of me when I, I just talked to one of the guys that was with me the other day, and he's still a good friend of mine. Um, and he he brought that up to me. God, you remember that? That was one of the things I really remember in my life. Really? And uh, the, me the, the, the meteor, meteor came out, and that's the Catalina yeah. Island off the west coast of the. Yes. U.S. where mm -hmm. David Fravor saw his, the Tic Tac, correct? Like that. that that's why I'm saying. Uh, yeah. I hope I didn't misidentify it at the time because this was, you know, back in 1978 or something like wow. that. Really? Yeah. Um, I joke around and say that I think Orville and Wilbur Wright signed my my pilot certificate, but <laughs> but it was a long time ago. And to see that type of anomaly back then was really neat. I thought, gosh, you know, people don't get to see things like this. Um, Anything else underwater that you've seen or heard about? Well, I've heard about a lot of it, and especially off the coast here of, of California, out by Catalina. So UAP are unidentified aerospace phenomenon, and there's a term USO, unidentified submersed, submersed uh, or submersible object. So basically something we can't identify under the water. That's correct. And yeah. I think typically, you know, when we talk about that, it's because they're moving at speeds that are very quick, right? Mm -hmm. um, they're zipping around underwater in a way that even like our missiles and our torpedoes can't do just due to the water friction. So somewhat easy to recognize if you have the tools. Well, the interesting thing is, that, you know, they call it, I think, a multi-media or multi-matter uh, ability to uh, propel itself. So like transmedium, like cross transmedium, yeah. different, uh, yeah, fluid densities. Right. So if it can propel itself in air, then can it propel itself in water? And normally a vessel is not made to do that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how is it able to do that? That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, to me, and no, I haven't seen one of those. I would love to say <laughs> I, I have or I will, but no, I haven't. And uh, it's to me, it's very interesting that uh, the, the transmedium uh, type of uh, propulsion system. Yeah. And that could be enabled on these things. It just boggles my mind. Hmm. Very cool. Do you have any questions for me about any of my experiences? Yeah, actually, I do. So when you were looking uh, at the through the IR, correct? Sure. Yeah. Um, you were looking on the, on the FLIR. Did you see any heat signature other than the object itself? Any type of propulsion system? No, there was no. You know, normally what we would see coming out of the back of an object is. A big distortion. I mean, it's very clear. You can actually see, depending on how close you are, you can actually see the shock waves inside the um, the exhaust plume. And if you mm -hmm. count those, you can actually typically count the Mach number of the exhaust uh, plume. It's kind of like a fun little thing, but that's neat. Um, so very a lot of fidelity to it. But when we were looking at these objects uh, on our FLIR, um, no, it was you, it was only really energy coming from a point source, more or less. Mm -hmm. Now the gimbal was a little bit different. That was you know, a larger object, but typically what we would see just appears like a point source of IR energy. Hmm. Interesting. So if there's no propulsion associated with what kind of speeds was it getting? So, yeah, you know, they would be stationary, but then they would also accelerate and hang out at 0.6 or 0.8 Mach. Um, and they'd be doing that all the time. If mm -hmm. a lot of times it's a little difficult, if you look at it just at a slice, you go, well, that's clearly a balloon because it's just floating there. And then as you see it going at 0.8 Mach, it's like, well, okay. Now I'm right. a bit more confused. And then it does that for several hours and becomes more confusing. But no lifting surfaces. Um, we weren't able to make out anything like that. No, no, you know, no rotors, mm -hmm. no, no uh, exhaust plume coming out. So really there was nothing to kind of indicate that there was something holding it in air, really, that mm -hmm. we could tell with our tools that we had. So some type of 
anti-gravitational technology, you would think? Unknown, frankly. I mean, it's just unknown. Um, one of the things that we're doing at the, the AIAA is working on building a, a sensing document that we'll use to promulgate different learnings about what sensors are useful, what are not, uh, what works, what doesn't, where information is, questions we have. And we're going to look to promulgate that out to the rest of the aerospace industry so we can start further refining our sensors and, and, our, and our analysis specifically for this topic in a new way. Right. Uh, most of the videos that the U.S. military has come out with, I, I have not really seen any type of propulsion system on the IR. Mm -hmm. uh, you've seen like the fuzzy image yep. around it, like it's some type of gravitational field or something like that, but no type of propulsion system, which to me is very interesting because these UAPs that we're seeing, I had some people say, oh, well, they're, they're jets, like you were talking about at high altitude or something. But the fact is, why would the jet come on, make a turn, and then go off? Why would it be turning? And how long did that happen for? Three and a half hours. Oh, yeah, and that's, that's the other yeah. thing. So they just had a stream of jets, you know? Yeah, yeah. going every which direction. Yeah. And, and that's the one thing that interests me the most, most is the propulsion systems of these. Um, and what can we learn from it? Mm -hmm. Is it, you know, what type of technology could we possibly have where we would be able to see these because obviously, like I said, we don't have IR capabilities in our aircraft. Well, do we need to get something like this to where we might be able to see them? Mm -hmm. um, be useful know? just gathering data on every yeah, flight, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, how can we gather data for this? How can we um, do it without uh, being intrusive on safety and and uh, and uh, with uh, airlines' blessings or with the other the military's blessings on this. Because the one big thing I think that we have to make sure that people understand is that this does not, this is personal, like you said, pilot to pilot. This does not involve any military disinformation. This doesn't involve someone saying, oh, you've got to say this or don't say that. It doesn't involve men in black. Yeah. Uh, what it does involve is aviation safety and it, it involves the the willingness of people to come forward and make sure that we're safe when we're flying the skies. We're just doing this ourselves, taking matters into our own hands. Absolutely. Someone has to do it. Absolutely. Awesome. Chris, thank you so much for coming again today. This is fantastic. Thank you. And thank you for actually taking a stand and having the bravery to speak about this. And well, thank you very much for allowing me to do it. Um, I just want to make sure that, you know, if you have any concerns in the future, whatever that you uh, give me a call because I, I'll, you know, I'm going to continue to take this stance, and I've been. So you're in there. You're 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 on board. You you want to see see this to the end, huh? Awesome. You know, it's, it's kind of like aviation, like a disease. Once it gets in your bloodstream, it doesn't get out. And the more I get involved with it, more interested I get, and the more I want to, you know, see. It, it's a it's a an anomaly, and it's a. Um, oh, how would you say it? Um, Pretty much, it's something that I've gained interest in. I want to gain the knowledge. I want to get the scientific answers to what's going on. Because I've always loved science. I've just been that type of person. And I just am curious about what the heck it is. And uh, it, it just, to me, I'm excited about it. I'm excited to be able to uh, be part of it. And I'm excited to be able to spread the information I have. And hopefully, 
make someone else excited about it. Awesome, man, that's incredible. And mm -hmm. I agree with you. I think the more people that look at this and talk mm -hmm. about it and actually consider it, getting over that laughter barrier, mm. um, I think the more people are gonna do exactly what you just did and just realize how interesting and how powerful this conversation can be. Thanks. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Thank you.